You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to another episode of the Draft Time Show here on The Voice of Islam. Today, with myself, Reza, and Brother Daniel, over the next two hours, we're going to be with you talking about two topics. In the first half of the program, we're going to talk about the um, Holocaust Memorial Day, the International Day of Commemoration in memory of the victims of the Holocaust. As always, you can call us on 0208687-7878. Don't forget, we're also on Instagram, Voice of Islam UK. And if you want to send us a tweet, do so at Voice of Islam UK on Twitter. Brother Daniel, assalamu alaikum to you. Wa alaikum assalam. Uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you and all the listeners. Um, yeah, great to be here today. And uh, very interesting topic, very topical. It is uh, the Holocaust Memorial Day today. So I think it's... Um, uh, it, it is a good time for us to talk about, good day to talk about um, all the other genocides as yeah. well, which has happened in the in the last hundred years. And with that, we're also trying to talk about how we can prevent future genocides. How yeah. much have we learned from the mistakes committed in the past? What is it that we've learned so that we can apply that knowledge to the future um, prevention of future genocides? Now, on this day... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that this is the message of uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and this is what uh, our leader, the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, mm. Hazrat Mr. Masood Ahmed, has been talking for the talking about for the past uh, couple of decades now, yeah. stressing uh, upon the need for peace in the world, uh, upon the need of sensibility in the world, and um, and putting an end to uh, to these genocides. So before we get started, um, in the Holy Quran, in chapter 7, verse 57, God Almighty states, and create not disorder in the earth after it has been set in order. The Holocaust included the killing of other minority groups apart from the, you know, a large Jewish population, which was about a third of the Jewish population um, that claimed the lives of approximately 6 million Jews during the Second World War under Nazi leadership. The as I said, the Holocaust also included the killing of other minority groups. For example, you had disabled people, um, you had people from different uh, cultural backgrounds, etc., etc. So all of this, we know, we've gone through this in the history classes, was a um, horrible, horrible time. I remember there was an exhibition in London called uh, "Seeing Auschwitz." We've learned about this in school. We've sure. heard the mm. facts and figures, the numbers and whatnot. But if you, <laughs> if you see the pictures, it's an experience. Yes, I can, I can imagine. It, yeah. You, you, yeah. you hear the stories of the raising experience. Yes, it's it's a whole different experience. Absolutely, yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's a, it's a shame that uh, we haven't learned anything. The humanity yeah. history hasn't learned anything from that. And uh, despite that event, unfortunately, even after that, we've had recently the, the Rohingya genocide. We've had before that the Bosnia genocide, and we've mm. had others. So uh, we don't uh, seem to have learned much from history. Exactly. So what needs to be done so that there is no repeat of this genocide or any other genocide in a world that we know is way too conflicted? If you look around the globe, there's one conflict after the other. Um, 
and that all of this is is that imbalance of the world that peace the lack of justice and all of these things as you mentioned his holiness has been talking about this what does islam say about it what is the solution what can we as individuals do that is all coming up in the next half of the program don't forget you can always get in contact with us on uh, social media as well as give us a call 0208687 and uh, we are usually asking you a question on our opinion poll on instagram so today's question is about the uh, first topic, the current genocide of which people needs more in uh, media attention. Is it the Palestinians? Is it the Yemeni? Is it the Kashmiri? Or is it the Rohingya people? That is the question on our Instagram poll. We're going to take a short break here and then continue with the program. Don't go anywhere. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time Show from uh, from the Voice of Islam Studios in South London. The time is 4.09 and uh, we are talking about the Holocaust um, and the Holocaust Memorial Day. Well, the Holocaust actually is the biggest known deliberate destruction of a group of people, there have unfortunately been other examples of mass killing uh, or mass killings. Um, if if you look at the definition of uh, genocide, so genocide was a term which was coined by a Polish writer and attorney, Raphael Lemkin in 1941, by combining the Greek words genos, which means race, with the Latin word side, which means killing. So genocide, as referred by the United Nations in 1948, means any of the following acts committed with the intent intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group, including A. Killing members of the group B. Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group C. Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And C. Uh, and E. Rather, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. 
So those are, uh, that's the definition of genocide as defined by United Nations, uh, uh, United Nations itself. Um, a few genocides, as, um, as we mentioned earlier, have taken place um, in the world in the last, um, in the last few decades. Uh, so obviously there is uh, the Holocaust. Um, then um, there was the, um, uh, the Bosnian genocide, which took place, um, the, the genocide of uh, Srebrenica. Um, which took place in uh, 1995. And uh, in Bosnia, uh, close to 300,000 people are supposed to have uh, lost their lives. Um, there was uh, the genocide um, in Cambodia, which was earlier in 1979. Uh, there was also the genocide in uh, Guatemala between 1982 and 1983. And then very recently, uh, after June uh, 2012, um, there was uh, a genocide uh, of Rohingya Muslims in Burma or Myanmar, as it is known now. So, so those are, and, and there, there are other examples as well. So unfortunately, the world does not seem to have learned um, the lesson. Um, the term genocide has most commonly been used for more uh, modern historical events, uh, as I mentioned uh, the Cambodian genocide, um, as well as the um, the genocide in uh, in Bosnia. Uh, there was also the um, uh, the genocide um, uh, in um, of Rwanda, um, which was in 1994, and this genocide uh, was in the middle of the Rwandan civil war and eliminated about 60 to 70 percent of the Tutsi people, accounting for seven percent of the whole population of the country. So again, a very, very devastating event uh, which took place um, there. His Holiness Hazrat Masrur Ahmed, may Allah be his helper, the Caliph and the head or the current head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, um, summed up the pathway to peace by saying, a golden principle given by the founder of Islam, peace and blessings be upon him is that a true Muslim should like for others what he likes for himself. I believe that this simple and profound point if acted upon, not just by Muslims, by all the people, is the means for everlasting peace in society. I mean, beautiful. How simple and yet how beautiful uh, really those words. And, and, and um, uh, I wouldn't say easy to follow, but easy to understand, certainly. So with some of these genocides that we've mentioned, there have been subsequent trials to punish the perpetrators. Um, even recently, German court sanctioned uh, a few Nazi party members who had a hand in, in the Holocaust uh, despite their old age. Um, accountability and ownership of previous mistakes by countries have taken a lot of time and it is still nowhere near perfect. Many of the, for example, um, uh, the, the people who perpetrated the Bosnian genocide are um, are still at large, and the um, the Burmese authorities have yet uh, to be held fully accountable for um, for the acts, uh, the cruel acts that they committed on Rohingya Muslims. So um, let's talk a little bit um, about these genocides uh, with um, Professor Phil Clark, 
who is a professor of international politics at uh, SOAS University of London. He specializes in conflict and post-conflict issues. Assalamu alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, really a pleasure, Professor. So, Professor, um, I don't know whether you were listening in. We've been talking a little bit about the Holocaust um, and then we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the other genocides that have taken place um, um, in the world, including the one in, in Rwanda, Bosnia, um, as well as um, in Myanmar recently. Why do you think we the world doesn't learn any lesson from history? I, I think that's a, a really important question because we we see genocides happening all the time. And I think as your discussion uh, just in the last few minutes has shown, uh, genocide has been happening in various parts of the world in, in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. I, I, I think the reason that we keep seeing genocides, even though the memory of the Holocaust is so strong, uh, it, it is because mass murder continues to be a political tool that certain leaders around the world choose to use in, in particular uh, moments of conflict, um, that, that, that there is something hardwired into particular forms of politics around the world that means that when leaders are under pressure, when there is mass conflict happening and, and, and they look to target particular minority groups uh, in those moments of conflict, one of the tools that, that many leaders choose to use uh, is the systematic attempt to exterminate particular minority groups. So I think, I think this is a symptom of politics. It's a, it, it's a perennial uh, aspect of human nature, it, 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 it seems. And so unfortunately, uh, even though we have the Holocaust as an example um, to deter us, I, I think we are likely to continue to see genocides in, in many parts of the world. I think that's just an unfortunate reality. Would you go so far as to say that the United Nations is is almost a defunct body now. So it was created in place of League of Nations, which failed to stop conflicts, and um, and therefore it was disbanded. The, all the genocides and conflicts that we've met, uh, that we've talked about, uh, uh, the Rwandan, the, the the Bosnian, the Rohingya Muslims, um, and the Holocaust. Um, uh, well, the Holocaust slightly before United Nations, but. What role do you think is the United Nations playing at all in all this? I do think that United Nations is not a responsive enough institution to be able to deal with genocides. When we talk about the UN, we tend to see a very reactive institution. So it's it's not well structured to see the telltale signs that genocides may be about to take place and, and, and then able to intervene. It, it's an actor that tends to only come into play when the violence has already ensued and there's been a very large death toll. And then we might see the UN try to set up a tribunal or try to put peacekeepers on the ground. Um, I, I think this points to a global institution that is not very flexible. It's not able to make very quick decisions. It's not able to react when we see uh, violence building in, in a particular society. And a lot of that stems from the power politics uh, between the permanent members of the Security Council. You've got these big global powers, the US, Russia, China, Britain, and France. These are states that these days agree on almost nothing. Mm. And so I'm trying to get them to build some consensus to be able to react quickly when uh, a violent situation is, is about to blow up is, is unfortunately almost impossible. 
possible, given the way the UN is structured at the moment. Would you say it's fit for purpose? I don't think it's fit for purpose. And I think, mm. you know, if I look at a country that I've been working in for 20 years, uh, Rwanda, mm. most Rwandans today, and this is nearly 30 years after the genocide, are still furious about the UN's failure to protect Tutsi civilians in Rwanda in 1994. The, the UN had a peacekeeping mission on the ground, but the Security Council had given it a very weak mandate that meant that basically soldiers couldn't fire a shot in order to protect civilians. They were there really as uh, useless bystanders. And so if you talk to most everyday Rwandans today and you mention the UN, uh, people get very, very angry. And they say, we had the, this global body that was here in our midst on the ground as the violence was happening and it it stood by and 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 really let this 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 genocide ensue so that's not just about the rwandan case we mm. we see that repeated all over the world so so i really don't in answer to your question think that the un is fit for purpose to to prevent and to deter genocide in the way that we might expect the un to do so professor clark uh, i think we can fully agree on that on that point so if that's the case um, and then we have in the international, the mainstream international media, which always focuses on uh, either the next big thing, or again there is some power politics um, and um, and geopolitics going on, and wouldn't want to focus on or talk about any of the issues that uh, that we're just talking about today. How hopeful are you about the future? I I, I think the media does play a really problematic role when it comes to genocides. Um, if I think of the, the recent cases of genocide in the last 10 or 15 years, um, some of the cases you've talked about, the case of the Rohingya in, in Myanmar, the case of the Yazidis in Syria, um, the, yeah. the case of Bosnia or the case of Darfur, in, yeah. in all of these situations, there were people on the ground who were sending warning signals, who were saying, this is what is happening to our people. This is the violence that is taking place. This is who is being targeted and, and, and why they are being targeted. But again, the international media also is very reactive. It, it, it often will only pick up on a story when a situation explodes. And so just as there is a question for the UN about noticing the warning signs as they become apparent, I think that also relates to international journalists and, and to the international press being much more attuned to the sorts of dynamics that can become something much bigger. And the media, of course, can send that message globally to say, here is a situation that requires intervention and it needs to happen now. But we're also talking about an international media apparatus that is very slow to uh, to respond. And so I think that's something that, that journalists need to take responsibility for as well. Yeah, isn't it disappointing that, you know, we here we, we're talking about... Um... Uh, great things to talk about, uh, you know, a, a greener environment, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a safer country, while, you know, people around us um, are either dying or, or suffering from wars and famines and uh, and whatnot. And yet nobody wants to, nobody in the media wants to take notice of that. And everybody wants to uh, to talk about something else. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really striking is, is how quickly these cases of mass violence, these cases of genocide float out of the media. Exactly. So even when the media finally does start to pay attention, let, let's take the case of the Rohingya. There, there was a, 
a moment about 18 months ago where the Rohingya was a front page story in much of the Western press. Uh, there was some real focus on the role of the Myanmar junta uh, acting towards the Rohingya, the issue of Rohingya refugees. You know, this was a big story for about two or three days. But then much of the international media has a very short attention span and it, it has a, particular short, a particularly short attention span when it comes to foreign stories uh, that involve violence. The caravan moves on and journalists start to look at other issues. And so what that means then is that governments like the one in Myanmar know that they may face some international shaming in the press for a few days. Hmm. But if they wait long enough, the attention will move somewhere else and and then they can continue the violence. And governments know that. So so that, I think, is also part of the problem here, that even if the situation on the ground is particularly dire, that alone doesn't guarantee that the media will spend more than a few days uh, paying attention to these very serious cases of violence. So, as a student of international politics, how how do you foresee the next ten to twenty years? Uh, um, the the geopolitics um, uh, sort of mapping out. We we have the conflict in Ukraine. There's there's obviously killings taking place there as well, and genocides taking place. And there's already noises in the media. But um, uh, but w- where do we go? Where do we go from here? It's unfortunately very hard to be optimistic about the next mm. 10 to 20 years. And, and the, I guess all of the talk in my circles um, amongst academics, amongst policymakers who, who work on mass violence is that we really need to gear up for, for a, a difficult next couple of decades. The, the world is likely to become even more volatile if we think of the impact of climate change, uh, the, the, the likelihood of very large migration flows, all, all of these uh, big global factors put pressure on societies that are vulnerable to mass violence. Um, And and so there's a lot of discussion at the moment about linking climate change, um, refugee flows, mass displacement to the likelihood of of, of large scale violence. And so and I'm not one to typically be apocalyptic, but I I do think we're looking at at the likelihood of, if anything, increased violence around the world in in the next 20 years. I, I think that means that we need to be even more vigilant about the build-up signs uh, to cases of uh, of war crimes, crimes against humanity and, and genocide. And we need to think much more systematically than we're doing at the moment about what to do in those places when we see the build-up to these these massive atrocities. And, and, and I don't think our thinking and our practice is, at the moment, really sophisticated enough um, to, to deal with what's coming our way in the next 20 years or so. Professor, it's been an Absolutely uh, enlightening discussion with you and, and such a pleasure to speak to you, Professor. Can I ask you in live radio, what are you doing on Saturday, the 4th of March? Let me explain the reason as well. Uh, um, there is the, Every year, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community holds a peace conference um, at, yes. um, uh, at this Bethel Fatou Mosque where we are located, uh, our studios is located as well. And um, in which uh, His Holiness, the, the leader of our community, uh, the current caliph of the Amnesty community, provides the solutions to the world. You're most yes. welcome to listen to uh, some of the recordings of the previous, uh, in the last couple of years, we haven't had the opportunity to hold it because of COVID. But, but this yes. year, so, um, so I would really like you to personally, uh, you know, uh, treat this as, a, as my invitation. I'll, I'll follow that up with, uh, with uh, a, a personal invite as well. Uh, which Wonderful. will fall in your inbox, but we would really love uh, for you to to come here and uh, 
uh, and B, uh, among uh, other like-minded people who are trying to find solutions to world problems as opposed to just fanning the fire. That, that, that sounds like a, 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 an invitation I couldn't possibly refuse. That sounds like a, an, an incredibly important event on, on pressing issues um, and, and right here in, our, in my midst in London. So it, uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think you leave me with any choice other than say I, I would awesome. love to be there. So I, I'm very grateful for such a kind invitation. Thank awesome. You. And I'm really grateful for the, for, uh, for the yes that you've given us. So thank you. <laughs> thank you very, very much. And, we, and, and I look forward to seeing you there. The invitation is on its way, Professor. (laughs) The the pleasure would be absolutely mine. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you very much, Professor. Really a pleasure to speak to you. My my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. 0208687 That was uh, Professor Phil Clark, Professor for International Politics at the SOAS University here in London. Interesting. Yes, absolutely interesting. And, uh, you know, couldn't agree more with the professor that, uh, unfortunately, the the future doesn't look very bright Mm. because of um, how the geopolitics is structured um, and how United Nations itself is structured. And, uh, unfortunately, the agendas that they are of, of various different powers and interest groups. And, unfortunately, also the the lack of any credible role that the media is playing in all this as well. Uh, they they just forget about um, the previous genocide and they just move on to the next one. So, um, yeah, I guess um, uh, these are, these are very uh, uh, testing times for the world in general, something that we... Uh, we shall be talking about more in the, uh, I'm sure His Holiness shall be addressing more mm. in the peace conference, which will take place on the 4th of March uh, here in the Betul Futu Mosque in South London. Um, and, and rightly so, uh, as you mentioned, we said in the beginning of the show, this the, the reason why we have to look at the past or why we do look at the past every single year and the reason for these days that we have not just a Holocaust Memorial Day but any other day that you can think of is so that how how can we apply what we've learned in the past to the future? Hmm. And isn't that what we need right now? Absolutely. 100%. That's exactly <clears throat> that. That's what... Uh, uh, what they said that the, uh, that's what the doctor ordered. And I, I remember when His Holiness went to Japan, for example, when when he talked about and when he spoke about the dangers of nuclear warfare. Hmm. Addressing that country or those people, that population that experienced it firsthand, your responsibility doubles. Yeah. So if, if, for example, let's say this was done here in Europe, Europe has a double responsibility to make sure that this kind of atrocities or this kind, any any kind of mm. you know injustice of that form does not ever happen again anywhere, not just in Europe. And, and Brother Asa, the, the kind of conversations, the, the kind of rhetoric that's coming from, from Russia and the kind of escalation that's currently going on with regard to the Ukrainian conflict, um, you know, these genocides will will look like child's play. Yeah. Unfortunately, if there is a nuclear war, a nuclear war, which, by the way, Russians have threatened a few times. And, and look what the response has been. Yeah. Instead of de-escalating, de-escalating you're waiting for the other country to... No, we're sending more tanks to them now. Yeah, exactly. So uh, isn't that what happened? Mm. I mean, one country was waiting 
for the other country to send the tanks first so that they could send tanks as well. Exactly. Instead of, you know, t- telling each other that, guys, look, we need to scale this down a little bit. But no, we're going to send 200 Leopard tanks. We're going to send 200 this tanks and 200 what tanks. Again, not not very helpful, as if you ask me. Well, 100%. Right. So, um, so we're talking about... Uh, uh, killings and Holocaust um, and I'd like to read out another um, uh, quote from the um, uh, His Holiness Hazrat Meza Masoor Ahmed, the current he- uh, leader of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community he said um, on behalf of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community I hope and pray that the international community comes together to help the Muslims in Myanmar and in this effort the Muslim nations should be at the forefront. I pray that the persecutions of Muslims in Myanmar, indeed all the people, all the people who are denied their religious rights in the world comes to an end. We believe that all people should be free to practice their faith or beliefs without any fear and that all people should be equal under the law of their land. Um, Really, Hmm. um, you know, uh, I, I don't know why uh, the world refuses to heed um, these words. Um, let me also a quote, um, uh, uh, quote a hadith, uh, which is a saying of the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, Hazrat Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said, whoever of you sees something repugnant, repugnant to the morals of faith, he should change it by his hand. If he has not the strength to do so, <coughs> then by the word of mouth, and if he cannot do, and if he cannot do so, then dislike it at heart, and endeavor to refrain through prayer. But this was the weakest of faith. Hmm. So, you know, at least dislike it, like we were talking about earlier. Talk about it. The media has to play a role in this. Everybody has to play a role in this. You know, my problem. I'll I'll be very honest with you. I think we've spoken about this here before as well. My problem with the, the way the world is going right now. Is that, look, this is one teaching that you've presented. Hmm. There is countless more narrations where the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has given advice, given uh, instructions to the people how you can make the society a better place. But the problem, or not the problem, but the problem for other people in this is that you will have to sacrifice something of your own. That means you have to sacrifice your pride, your ego. Sometimes when it comes to, I mean, in these cases, it comes to multi-billion dollar um, contracts, uh, arms deals and whatnot. You will have to sacrifice. So when people say that religion is a problem, (laughs) then how can you explain verses like this? How can you explain narrations like this that talk about how to de-escalate, how to resolve a conflict and you know a, a, a Muslim leader praying that the persecution of Muslims not just in one country but in any other, other country comes to an end that you have uh, freedom to practice your faith or belief without any fear that you have justice for all irrespective of where they come from what their color is what their creed is so it's not just one life matters it's every life matters it doesn't matter who which race you belong to mm-hmm. The fact that you're human, the fact that you deserve to be treated fairly and equally and just, that's yeah. that's a right for everyone. Absolutely. And this connection that a lot of people draw between religion and violence, uh, I, I'd simply remind them that the 
the great the biggest genocides in history the um the <clears throat> biggest destruction in the the world has ever seen which took place during the first world war and the second world war weren't caused by by religion yeah. there was no religious uh, dogma involved there and what's religious about the ukraine conflict that's going on at the moment yeah. There's Tell nothing religious it, yeah. about it. It's all geopolitics. There's both Christian countries on both sides. Exactly. So, um, so, you know, it's a, it, it's 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 really about um, you know it, it, these are all deflections um, that media constructs. Now, similarly, there is a humanitarian crisis in Yemen as well, which some have deemed as a kind of genocide. Genocide. An estimated quarter of a million people have died, mostly by hunger. And the situation there is the result of human action rather than actual food shortage in the world. On top of this, there have been various attacks on the country which have killed thousands of people, thousands of innocent people. And these events, they go back to a conflict between the Houthis and the Yemeni government backed by different countries at loggerheads. And we know which countries those are. And 80% of the people of Yemen are in dire need of help. Whilst different organizations are trying to bring aid, the clashes in this region, they need to stop in order to save innocent lives. So conflicts being at the core of genocides, there is potential for this crisis to end in, you know, being one of the largest genocides in that area. So leaders should give precedence to, to, to peace in these times and help out fellow humans. But again, we know what is happening in the background. We know that these are um, proxy wars being fought by different governments. Um, and what the cost of that, uh, not just in not the monetary cost, but the, mm-hmm. the, the cost in life is, nobody seems to care at the top. And again... In this case, we can say we're talking about Muslim countries, Muslim-majority countries, mm. so-called Muslim-majority countries. So-called Muslim-majority countries, absolutely. And shouldn't they know better? <laughs> <laughs> yes, theoretically, yes. Theoretically, yes. <laughs> so what can we do and what needs to happen for us to realize that this is not something that we can continue to do that? His Holiness, Hazrat Mizam Masoodham, the current caliph of the Yemeni Muslim community, he said that if people fulfilled their promises and there was justice at every level and the rights of others were fulfilled, then we would never have seen the destruction that we saw during the wars in Iraq, in Syria, Libya, Yemen and Afghanistan in recent times. We will not have witnessed what has come about in these countries, nor will the current Ukraine conflict have come to pass. These are the words of His Holiness. Now, 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call if you want to have your say. What do you think needs to happen? What can we do to prevent future genocides or you know these uh, atrocities from happening? The question that we're asking you on our Instagram story, the current genocide of which people do you think needs more media attention? Is it the Palestinians? Is it the Yemeni? Is it the Kashmiri genocide or conflict? Or is it the Rohingya conflict? That is the question that we have for you today on our Instagram poll. So go to Instagram UK and leave your comment. Or, of course, if you think all of them, then do message us and we'll include that into the show.
Let's go now to Dr. Martin Cook, who is who is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of West England. He's also an associate editor of the International Journal of Human Rights. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. Thank you very much for joining us, Doctor. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Crook, um, we're talking about previous genocides. Yeah. Do you see new threats emerging in the 21st century? Uh, yes, certainly. I think um, a lot of my research looks at the impact of uh, environmental degradation and ecological destruction uh, as a driver of genocide. Um, mm. I think in the in the age of generalized ecological crisis and climate change, it's I think it stands to reason that given we as human beings are of course embedded in ecological systems and ecosystems, if those become degraded, then uh, they pose a, a grave threat to life in general, but of course uh, the existence and survival of groups, which are of course the target of of genocide. So I, th I think that's that's a really important consideration. Um, and of course, there are other threats as well. I think, um, you know, we're seeing uh, an international system, an international state system, which seems to be increasingly destabilized, um, emerging threats around the world, wars breaking out, which threaten the um, sanctity and stability of entire societies. Uh, so we have to think about ways of... Uh, you know, seeking to reinforce and and defend uh, international peace and security. I think that's a really important factor as well. But there are there are many others, of course, many other emerging threats. Um, how are such mass killings, uh, such as the ones that have been carried out in the past? Um, uh, so we, we we talked about, uh, for example, Bosnia. We've talked about uh, Myanmar. Uh, the Rohingya crisis. How, how, how can it be that in this day and age, in, uh, in the 21st century, so many of the perpetrators are still at large? Um, well, that's a, that's a fantastic question. I, I think, you know, we have, of course, the Genocide Convention that was ratified in 1948. Um, we have international criminal law more generally that was designed to ensure that no one could escape justice, including heads of state, generals, kings, queens, etc. Um, but in practice, um, they do escape justice. Um, and I think this boils down to the fact that we have, you know, vast inequities and, you know, imbalances in power around the world. And so when, when these laws are enforced, they're usually enforced because there seems to be a vested interest in particular powers enforcing those, those laws. And when they're not, it's because there isn't a vested interest for a particular state or nation or, or power. And so that's why I think so often they, they are at large and they do manage to escape justice. And then there are, of course, examples of that around the world. What role is the is the media playing in all this? Um, I think the media plays a really significant role. Um, you know, I, I sort of subscribe to the uh, the argument that Noam Chomsky made and Edward Herman that the media plays a role in manufacturing consent. <laughs> and so, if we think about the role of very United few people Kingdom, have read that book, by the way. <laughs> uh, yes, that's true. That's true. Um, um, 
you know, when you think about the role of, for instance, the United Kingdom and the United States, um, you know, unbeknownst to the vast majority of, of the citizens of the UK and the US, our, our, those two states are perpetual violators of international law. They commit, they undermine in, international peace and security. And, you know, I could go on for hours detailing the, those, the ways in which they do that, but the media doesn't cover these things. And so the media is playing a huge role in not just commissioning of, you know, falsehoods often, but also the omission, not telling and informing the public about various crimes that are committed overseas, uh, violations of international law, and so on. Um, you know, so there, there are plenty of examples of, of that as well. Um, you know, think about, for example, the role that the United Kingdom, the United States, the United States plays in uh, diplomatically, economically, and legally um, supporting an, uh, the, the state of Israel and the role it plays in the occupied oc- occupied territories in mm. in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, just just one example mm. of that. So. The, the the general public are just not made aware of what international law is and what the true behavior of the states of our respective governments are um and so it's it's falling short of its you know its um legal obligation to inform and entertain and educate i think as as is the founding principles of the bbc um so that's that i i i think it plays a huge role so Professor Crook, uh, sorry, Dr. Crook, when do we do we know how how these genocides and these conflicts how they start, and if we do so, actually, you go ahead if you if you don't mind. Uh, no, no, it's fine. Um, how do they start? There, there are plenty of. There is no one unified, you know, singular explanation for But all. But are genocide. there any factors that you know you can say? Okay, these were the common you know factors maybe mm. some of them like broad um uh, things that they have that these conflicts have in common yeah i i think you know there's always a danger of overgeneralizing sure. um but yes many of them involve you know key dimensions like nationalism uh, the rise of the modern nation states in the 19th century and its drive to homogenize cultures and and religions amongst its subject populations to ensure you know a more social solidarity Uh, take for instance the example of uh, the Armenian genocide uh, w- with you know the slow gradual collapse of the Ottoman Empire which was cosmopolitan which was multicultural we saw the rise of an effort to construct a new state around a unified homogenous culture with unified custom and language etc and the way to do that the way to ensure the allegiance of its citizenry to the state was to remove obstacles to that such as minority groups like the Armenians who mm. nearly a million nearly a million were killed so certainly the rise of the nation state certainly imperialism is a huge role plays a huge role the the drive to occupy and control and, and annex land and 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 exploit resources of subject populations which then needs to be justified through racism through you know scientific forms of racism as we saw under the uh, Nazi regime and under the British empire a lot of my research looked at the the role of you know sort of um, scientific racism in justifying and legitimizing the occupation of, of Kenya mm. 
So a lot of my research actually looks at, um, you know, perversely the ways in which we are currently trying to mitigate climate change are actually driving mass atrocity crimes um, by removing indigenous peoples from their, you know, their land and their forest dwellings. But of course, you know, it's not just the, the forcible actions and violence that plays a role, it's the role of discourse and ideology and racism that um, supports it. And it has a history that goes back to, you know, arguing that yeah. some groups of people are inferior and um, beyond uh, our universal moral obligations. So, you know, that, that's a fact. And I think even many of the trappings of modern societies, whether it's, you know, um, uh, bureaucracies um, which allow people to commit atrocities but be far removed from the consequences of their actions. Think of many, you know, high-ranking Nazis like um, Adolf Eichmann, yeah. um, famously who organized the trains in occupied Europe, sitting behind a desk, um, filling in forms, far removed from the consequences of his actions. That plays a role as well. So. I think those are some of the key ones, but uh, I think in the modern age, in the 21st century, I would argue um, that I think um, it has to be attributed to uh, a capitalist system which is predicated on unsustainable use of resources and energy, which is, um, you know, destroying uh, the, the biosphere and the environment. And if we don't have a, a you know, livable environment, then no one's going to be able to survive, including groups, which are, of course, the, uh, the, the targets of genocide. Hmm. Dr. Crook, how optimistic does that make you? <laughs> um, I try to remain optimistic. Um, <laughs> I think, sure. you know, if we look at the history of resistance to, to genocides and other atrocities, we have made remarkable progress. Um, so I have to hope that you know, we see the rising movements, whether it's against racism, whether it's against Islamophobia, whether it's against um, ecological destruction. We see them emerging in ever greater numbers. So I have to hope that they will make the difference and turn the tide before it's too late, because we are running out of time, unfortunately. So what needs to be done then? Nationalism, what? imperialism, racism, <laughs> capitalism... You are inferior. I'm superior. These are things that Professor Crook, I, uh, Dr. Crook, I, I do apologize. With them. I, I do no, see. I do see today as well. I mean, it's probably more yeah. than it was before. Before, Absolutely. let's say, if you look at look at look at World War Two, it was in that specific area. It was in the German, um, you know, country. Maybe if you put Austria in there as well, but it mm. was in that corner. But today, it's just. It's, imperialism it's, it's you, from India to Brazil it's, it's, it's a sophisticated <laughs> it's, form I could say I mean it's not mm, as blunt mm. as black and white as it used to yeah. be but yeah. nowadays it's I mean it's it's so complicated and so vast but national interests yes. is I, I see it and I think the next generation is going to see it even more clearly than we ever have so mm. what what needs to happen I mean if well, you, I, I, do we have any kind of control any checks and and balances on on how to keep the world in a balanced state well well you know um at the moment all we have really is you know or perhaps not all we have but the most important tools we have are in terms of checks and balances are not just international law and ensuring that that states do abide by international law 
um, but also, um, you know, thriving movements, civic movements that uh, want to put exert pressure on their respective governments to respect, you know, um, cultural minorities and so on, to respect laws, uh, to, to fight things like racism, which is an essential part of mass atrocity crimes and genocide, you know, by, as I, as I alluded to earlier, producing mm. difference uh, and legitimizing the subjugation of entire peoples. So, you know, it, it, there is no one size fits all, sure. one, you know, silver bullet. But I think we can start by demanding that our government, so in the case of the United Kingdom, that they respect international law, that they respect the sovereignty and political integrity of other countries and other nations. Uh, that would be a, a good start. Um, you know, so take, for instance, one controversial subject, which is, of course, the war in Ukraine. Um, obviously, when we have a war, um, that, uh, you know, it increases by many orders of magnitude the potential for mass atrocities. The um, the judges at the, the, the um, Nuremberg trials after World War II famously concluded that, you know, that, that illegal use of, of force, in other words, invading other countries, uh, is the supreme crime of crimes because it contains within it the seed of all other crimes. Hmm. Once you have a war, then it's possible to, you know, to, um, to commit war crimes, obviously. Then it's also possible to commit crimes against humanity, uh, to, you know, systematically target uh, subject populations in the occupied territories and so on and so forth. So we need to ensure that countries do uh, respect the territorial integrity uh, and political, sorry, territorial boundaries and political integrity of other countries. But, you know, our country doesn't come out of, of this, this conflict in the Ukraine clean either. You know, when we think about the role that the United States and the UK has played in, for instance, um, intervening in the inter internal affairs of Ukraine, many have argued that uh, they played a role in you know, the, um, the the revolution, the Maidan coup, whatever you want to call it, mm. in 2014 that overthrew the government and replaced it with a government that was more friendly to the United States. And then, of course, the expansion of NATO uh, eastwards towards the very borders of, of Russia, which, you know, if you think about it, of course, is going to escalate tensions. Um, this is obviously not to, to condone or to justify the invasion of Ukraine, that was that is a crime, an international crime. But you know, everyone has to respect uh, international law, which fundamentally in the UN Charter does state in, that includes respecting the internal, uh, you know, to, to not in, interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, um, and so. You know, we could we could talk about maybe moves to <laughs> yeah. to ban nuclear weapons. To to um, that's to a ban tough thing to sell to the big warfare. ones, isn't it? <laughs> these are huge. These are big. These are the big ticket items. I agree, uh, but you have to think yeah. big, don't you? Otherwise, you won't sure. get anywhere. Professor, finally, why don't we hear voices of reason like yourself on mainstream media? Um. Well, I, I, I refer you back to um, Chomsky's great book, Manufacturing <laughs> Consent, <laughs> which, which you know, talks about <laughs> yes, yes, which talks about exactly, which talks about many of the filters um, to ensure yeah. that certain narratives are elevated above others, yeah. um, and I think my, the kind of voices, 
you know that you 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 refer to which may which you argue are reasonable and i and i'm very flattered that you think i i have a reasonable voice um are probably antithetical to the commercial interests of those who control mainstream news media. Um, there's only a handful of media barons that control in excess of 70% of all news media in the UK. Um, it's probably not good for business <laughs> um, to some extent. So that's partly mm. why. Um, it happens so often when you hear, you know, really you know, sort of um, heterodox thinkers who are invited for one appearance and they say something that contradicts received wisdoms or the hegemon hegemonic narratives and they're never seen again. Um, so they're never invited back. And there's many stories like that, mm. um, you know, in mainstream corporate news media. So unfortunately, we have to think about structures of ownership of, of news media uh, and how we can reform it to make it more... Uh, accessible and amenable to, to ordinary people. Wonderful. Senior lecturer in sociology at the University of West England and also associate editor of the International Journal a journal on Human Rights, Dr. Martin Crook with us on the line. Dr. Crook, thank you so much for your time. Very, very interesting to talk to you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you very much. 0208 uh, Dr. Cook said it. <laughs> yes, he did. I appreciate the candid remarks. No, I'm, I'm just saying that. It will <laughs> yeah. Go up to the, the, the big players and exactly. say, you know yeah. what? No, no, no. No more imperialism. Exactly. Uh, that's Which sure. ain't going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Send that book to them, maybe. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, if they read it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now we're asking you which of the current the genocides or conflicts around the world do you think need more coverage, need more media attention? Is it the Palestinian conflict? Is it the Yemeni conflict? Is it the Kashmiri conf- conflict? Or is it the Rohingya conf- uh, conflict? Um, do go to Voice Islam UK and leave us a uh, comment or and cast, and cast your vote. You know, I was um, I think I referred to this a few times in one of the last shows. <sighs> You remember when we spoke to someone from the World Food Program? Yeah, yeah. Well, we did. Well, that, that was yeah, a show the, with you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she said that goal that they had. Yeah. They cannot feed people. Yeah. They cannot eliminate world hunger because they, these things are going out of hand. Yeah. There's more and more conflict. We cannot access areas. We cannot go to certain countries because yeah. they, they just wouldn't let yeah. us. And do you remember the figure that she she? Uh, she yeah, was it was two thousand. You know, she the, the, she said that uh, the only the 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 money that the oh, World Food Program needs yes. to eliminate hunger from the world is what thirty billion dollars. And and and, 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 and yeah. <laughs> if you compare that, the numbers got to, to if you compare that to the defense budget of United States, five hundred. Uh, that's close to nine hundred oh billion a year. Oh. Um, I don't remember the exact figure of the UK government, but it's also in hundreds of billions. Yeah. So, you know, just put that in perspective. It's nothing. There it's peanuts. Go. Yeah. That's what? <laughs> 500 tanks? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Something like that. Now, we have many principles that should be adhered to to avoid more of such incidents. We have spoken to some of our guests and we are greatly appreci- uh, appreciative of their time and uh, coming on to this show. 
When Islam talks about um, solutions such as in verse 8, uh, chapter 8, verse 62, and if they incline towards peace, incline thou also towards it and put thy trust in Allah. When it talks about how the community of believers should act when you have one um, group of uh, people when you have one country when you have one aggressor how the remaining league of of countries or that group of countries how they should act or when it talks about being just being uh, talk about being honest and giving true testimony even if it has to be against yourself or your loved ones or even your parents these are some of the golden principles that islam has laid out some of the uh, instructions and rules given to its followers to make sure that we don't fall into the same trap that previous nations have fallen into. And as we've seen, if you don't follow that, even those nations who have been given this beautiful religion, even those who call themselves followers of that great prophet, the greatest prophet in our eyes to ever walk this planet, of uh, this, this planet, even those can fall into error. So it needs to be something that needs to be in front of us and it needs to be something that is told to us and reminded um, that this is actually what this religion and what God Almighty wants from you. We're going to go to the news and then we'll be back after that. We're going to stick to this topic for just a few more minutes and then we'll continue to topic number two. Stay with us. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum, peace upon you. Welcome back to the Draft Time Show here on the Voice of Islam today with myself, Raza, and Brother Daniel. We are just going to conclude, I think we already have kind of the um, topic for the first hour um, that we were talking about, the Holocaust Memorial Day. It serves as a painful reminder of the wrongs that humans have done in the past and, and also draws our attention to you know the present injustices. As we've tried to cover throughout the show that we should not let such a genocide get repeated again and again, at again, not just again and again, but just again at any cost. Yet it is unfortunate that there is so much lack of peace and tolerance all around us. It cannot yet be said what we have learned from history. Having said that, we should also carry on to spread awareness of it and hope and pray that we learn, we do learn from the mistakes of the past and present in order to have a pleasant future, something that the Holy Quran reminds us over and over again, that if you want to learn from, from, from or if you want to know how to lear, live your future, your present, then look back, look towards those people who were before you, look towards the mistakes that they've committed and learn from those makes, mistakes so that you do not commit the same errors, the same um, mistakes that they have done. But unfortunately, as we are also told in the Holy Quran, the the blueprint of man, the, the nature of man, the way we're made is just that every generation thinks that they're better than the ones before, that they know how to do things better and that they are superior than, to, uh, than, than the nations before or the people before them. So all we can do, and this is something that His Holiness has been saying for, for decades now, is to pray, to connect, to make sure that we have that bridge, that to, to, to bridge that gap 
that we have with God Almighty, with our Creator, that that is the only way that we can go through this very, very difficult time that we have at the moment. Now, moving on. Brother Danya, royal family or normal family? Asian family or Caucasian family? All of them have problems, don't yes, they? Yes, yes. And I, I thought only my family had. <laughs> <laughs> but, but having looked at the script for today's show, I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that, yeah, that was obviously not the case. So today's show is about overcoming family feuds. Every family experiences some type of difficulties in their life, but it is important not to let these feuds come in the way of a peaceful family home. Islam states that maintaining a good relationship with family members, especially parents, is paramount. In the Holy Quran, chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, Allah states, Worship none but him and show kindness to parents. If one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, never say to them any word expressive of disgust, or nor reproach them, but address them with kindly speech, and lower to them the wing of humility out of tenderness, and say, My Lord, have mercy on them, even as they nourish me in my childhood. I always say this, that you will never understand. You will, well, okay, not mm. never, but not fully understand. Up to 90%, 85, 90, 95, and even, well, go for it. 99% you will understand what your parents go through, what your parents, why your parents are deserve deserving of that respect that uh, the Holy Quran and Islam is talking mm. about. Especially not until you become a parent yourself. That's the f- missing 10%. Mm. That mm. that is when you in that moment when you hold your newborn mm. you realize mm. I don't know anything. Mm. I now I understand why my parents did the things that they what did. What they did exactly. Yeah. So even like uh, look, yeah. I was uh, an imam for what two three years, right. having gone through seven years, th- done speeches on this topic. Like <laughs> you can right. forget about how many. But here I was, mm. you know, holding mm. that, that new life and thinking, mm. oh, God, I don't know anything. Mm. Yes, yeah, that's why God says these things. That's, mm. that's why you should never say even, oh, or oof mm. to your parents. Yes. And how annoying is that sometimes? But mm. don't even think about it. Don't even, don't even go that way. Yeah. Because you do not know what they went through. Exactly. <laughs> and, and then you, you, you're absolutely right. All the... Uh, all the pain that parents go through, I mean, getting up uh, in the middle of the night, well, even before that, firstly, you know, mother uh, giving birth, uh, you know. The nine months before the, the birth. Nine months before I mean, the that. birth itself, yes. <sighs> exactly. And then, uh, you know, staying up at night and uh, yeah. caring and taking care of uh, of the newborn and then, uh, you know, just looking after everything, you know, the, that that baby, that child becomes your whole life. Everything, yeah. That becomes the, the center point of your life. Everything revolves around around that baby. You forget You've the been. life before. <laughs> Do you have <laughs> any <laughs> recollection? I mean, for you, it's been a long... So, it's a bit longer than me. <laughs> suddenly, yeah, absolutely. Like like that, absolutely. I was, yeah. I was, I was a bachelor once. What? Right. When? When was that? Correct. Must that, have been. That's distant memory. Oh. Uh, Everything changes that moment. <laughs> so children are the future, so they have to be loved and, and, and given the best upbringing possible. There's no doubt about that. You hold that newborn, you you as a parent, you have that responsibility and there's nothing that would 
keep you away from fulfilling that responsibility. You would do anything in that moment and you know that you will have to sacrifice a lot. But that's okay. With all the joy that comes along, with all the happiness that comes along, with all the experiences that come along, you're more than happy to do that. Not only one's own children, but also, you know, the younger generation as a whole, we know that must be treated with love, with kindness, with respect. And that is a strong word of advice given by the Holy Prophet of Islam that he said, and you know, this is not just one narration, but many narrations in which he says that always be kind to your children, give respect so that you are given respect, inculcate in them the best of manners. Mm. And he wasn't talking about in your own children. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I don't think, maybe, I don't know, I'll probably go back to the original Arabic, but as far as I remember, he, it doesn't say about, yeah, in your children, but not in your own, just your own flesh and blood. Because yeah. it was, it's for the society, isn't sure. it? To, yeah, to, absolutely. And, 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 you know, if you think about it, if family is a microcosm of the society. Yeah, yeah. So if, if everybody takes care of their families, the society in general is taken care of. Um, and and that is the uh, the ethos of Islam. That is the model that uh, uh, that Islam follows uh, in an Islamic in a in a society where Islamic practices are followed. Um, and as you said, children are the future, so they have to be loved yeah. and given the best upbringing possible. And parents um, are given that given that responsibility. So before we look at some of the solutions and how to deal with certain issues, how to deal with certain problems that you may have within your families, it's also important to look at maybe some of the causes. So there's a few that we have uh, gathered, we have collected here. Of course, it's not just these few that we're going to talk about. There's so many more different aspects because... Let's face it, there's so many different families with all different dynamics and all different characters and, 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 and natures. And of course, they're going to have multiple reasons why there is friction, why there are trouble, why there is trouble within the family. But I think the most common, the biggest uh, we have tried to collect. So let's just go through that. Brother Daniel, first one. The first one is, uh, no surprise, lying. Mm. Sometimes we think by telling a lie, we're making the situation better. But that is never, ever the case. Rather than lie, we should always tell the truth. It hurts. The truth always hurts. But the truth is the only way to healing and health. A family cannot walk together unless they do so on the basis of honesty, openness, uh, truth, and, uh, you know, I, I guess the trust that is at the foundation of any relationship. Hmm. When that trust is is uh, is is broken, then uh, everything sort of falls apart, and and lying is at the yeah. at the center of that. And there's a you know beautiful narration of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which a person came to him and he asked, "How can I get rid of everything? Hmm. I have so many issues, I have so many problems, I have so many." Vices. How can I get rid of all of them? Mm. And this was his solution. The Prophet said, "Stop, stop lying, stop lying. and everything else will fall into place." Yeah. Yeah. On number two, we uh, have anger. Now, anger in itself um, is not a sin, but anger is often handled wrong in in one of two ways. So, blow up or clam up. Now, losing one's temper is, um, mm. you know, you could call it a sin, but people think that they need to get it out of their system in one way or another. But this is only for the 
for the concerns of the giver, not the receiver of anger. Others deal with anger by climbing up. Uh, you should not you know, bring up every little thing that upsets you, uh, even if it's things from, I don't know, sometimes it's 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Otherwise, you know, homes would be a very, very horrible, a terrible place to, to, to be and to live. But if you cannot go to sleep without, um, you know, without it, then, then, then you do need to talk about it. Don't go to bed angry. That's something that a lot of elders will tell you that if you're having an argument, if you're having a fight, don't go to sleep angry. Decide to discuss it and then deal with it and be ready to, to tell the truth and, ex- and, and hear the truth. Yeah, but what if you've had a tough day? What if your boss is an OCD? <laughs> <laughs> I know you. I, I, no, no, I think you know what I'm talking it's, about. It's, it's the cycle, isn't it? So you hear it from your wife, you let it out on your boss. <laughs> no, you never let it out on your boss. <laughs> the boss lets it out on you, and then and, that and then the wife lot. and then the wife lets it out on you. <laughs> Where do you go? All right, now you find someone. <laughs> right. Our first guest for today uh, is a qualified and UKCP registered family and system systemic psychotherapist for East London Relationship Therapy, ELRT. Nasreen Begum is with us online. Aslam alaikum, peace be upon you and welcome to The Draft Home Show. Hello, nice to meet you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you very much for joining us today. Now, Nasreen, what is the East London Relationship Therapy? What do you do? Is there anything uh, you specialize in? Well, we we are a group of different types of therapists. I'm the only family therapist and couples therapist there. So, um, and the and yeah, it basically there are therapists there who offer different types of therapies. Okay. Mm-hmm. What what do you generally find when you do therapy, uh, couples therapy? What are the underlying reasons? Um, I think so. I mean, they're really, really broad. So, I mean, one of the major things can be that um, couples, before they've gotten married or uh, decide to have a family or live together, whatever it is, they didn't really sit and talk things through beforehand. Does that make sense? So they haven't, um, you know, discussed how they want to do things or how they want to raise children or even openly talking about their finances, you know? their schedule so then people just kind of try to feel their way around and make lots of assumptions and it gets quite difficult and of course when we can't tell the future 100 percent, but if we can sit and have a discussion beforehand because it is a contract it is an arrangement it's living together one way or another i think it can be helpful because then you can kind of go back and say explain to that person oh i know i said that originally and i've kind of gone through this journey and whatever it is so I think that's really helpful because then each one of the partners can be can discuss or negotiate what works for them in a relationship and what doesn't. Like even who does housework, who does and who does what in, a, in taking care of children is really important. Um, so I think and explain why they want to do that thing and why they want to do things differently. So I think that's one of the things um, that comes across in couples' work is that. Some people, they're kind of, a lot of couples haven't really discussed things beforehand. And now, like, new problems are coming up because they've got children and they might have very different values. Um, so they're doing things very differently. Um, a typical example is Christmas holidays or um, maybe doing Eid gatherings or whatever it is. One 
one um, person may have come from a very small family and they were attracted to the other partner because they want that person comes from a big family and they're like, oh, I really mm. like that. I missed out on that. I really want that. And then the other person, um, they have these maybe big gatherings, people coming in and out. And the person who comes from a small family is like, I like this, but it's exhausting. I'm not used to it, you know. I find this really tough. I mean, it's just not what I grew up with. And now I just want some peace. So that's what I mean. Like sometimes people, there are just, um, those are some of the things. Finance is a big issue that people come with. So people haven't been open about their finances or financial habits. Um, I mean, and just a lot of stresses basically come from COVID, some of the experiences people have had. Um, couples come because they say, well, they are in a marriage which where things are happening which they didn't agree to. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes they'll be like, well, I didn't really agree to right. look after her mum and her mum move in with us. Would you then the recommend parents. that therapy, therapy is usually considered um, and usually understood uh, to be something when or, or something of use when there are problems in a, in a marriage. So based on what you're saying, do you think it, it's probably wise to have therapy for couples right at the beginning of uh, of trying to form a relationship at the beginning of marriage? Well, you know what? What's really interesting, there's plenty of churches and mosques that provide courses for couples now because they've become so aware of these issues. And, you know, um, religious organizations are quite invested because they want uh, marriages to work for couples, you know? And so sometimes they send people off to these marriage courses um, to think about some of these things beforehand. So I think it doesn't necessarily have to be therapy, but um, definitely even with elders in the community, friends, um, you can get stuff off the internet now, um, organizations, there's plenty of stuff around to help you prepare for marriage and to think about marriage for the future. And it's like you, you hit the nail on the head, it's really good to just do some preparation for what you want in the future. Um, what are um, what is your sort of success rate been like um, uh, when couples, um, you know, has it been higher for, for couples who've, who've sort of come in early in their marriage life versus people coming in sort of later? I think that um, generally the overall... The num high number of couples we see, or I definitely see, are in their 30s and 40s. And I think that's because they um, often, uh, what couples do is they have what we call a corrective script. So it's like, I want to do something, I want to be different from my parents. I want to do things differently. And even their parents want that, like, I want you to do better than I did for you. You know, that's a really wonderful perspective. Um, and but then you know, in, when they're in their thirties and forties, they realise they have all these problems. And I'm like, oh, how did I get here? I try to do things differently, yeah. and um, you know, we're kind of fighting all the time. We fight at the small things. What's that about? Or this person takes me for granted, and but he doesn't, or she doesn't want to move out, or you know. Um, so I think like um, another example is, for example, one person says, I'm going to work part time now, or oh, I lost my job, but I can't go and get a low-paid job now, so I'm just going to stay at home. And then the other person's like, oh my gosh, this isn't, you know, financially, we can't manage, mm. or I don't find you attractive anymore. So I think there's always, you know, that's the age bracket where also people can afford therapy, but we are seeing younger people come in for therapy because they're becoming, couples are becoming more open-minded, and plenty of people coming in before they get married to prepare uh, for life together. 
May I ask you, since um, how 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 long or when did you get into th- this kind of uh, um, line of work? Well, how, what are we talking about, ballpark? So I've been working in the community in social care for the last twenty years. Okay. Um, and as a psychotherapist, it's been eight years. So the reason why I asked because we had a, a somewhat of a shift in in society when social media was introduced to the world and some data actually suggest that social media is now a factor in one in seven divorces we also mm-hmm. have that uh, you know it's been cited as one of the main causes in, in these daily arguments between one in every five couples why did you not reply to my message oh who was that you're talking to where why did you speak to the such and such person at this time how much damage is that doing to to the couples? Well, I don't think... Um, I mean, it's one of the factors for some couples. I wouldn't say it's necessarily... Mm. Perhaps more with the younger generation. Yeah, because you, you mentioned that more and more younger people are, are, are coming into yeah. therapy. That's... So what you have now with a, a much younger generation or with this new way of doing things is there's dating apps, there's ways of... You know, where physically a long time ago you'd have to go somewhere to do something. And now it's just in your room, in your house. There is an app or a dating app or a friendship app or whatever it is. And it's quite easy to now think, I'm fed up. I'll just build this dating app. Mm. <laughs> you know, for some attention or to be to uh, live a fantasy. I'm not harming anyone because I'm actually not doing physically anything. So... It does create problems, yes. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> what role, um, help us understand a little bit, how, how does therapy typically work between a couple? So, I would imagine that, uh, you know, they would need somebody, um, an expert like you, because there has been a total breakdown of communication between the couple. Uh, so, do you then act uh, as an honest broker? Is is that the sort of uh, position you and have? And what if, what if one side does not agree? Yeah. I mean... For it to work, both people have to come into therapy. Um, It's usually women who kind of pull men into therapy. Um, And that's, I think, partly because we live in a society that's not supportive of men to be that open, you know. And also, a lot of therapists are female. And um, and that's, you know, they think maybe they won't be heard. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. So I think... Definitely, you know, but the, a, one, a person can come into therapy individually and ask, well, what, what can I do to mm. improve my marriage or improve my communication? A lot of the couple's work is really just um, untangling a lot of stuff. Um, definitely as a family therapist, you'd look at like the generational stuff, you know, like you do a family tree of parents and grandparents and belief systems and ideas and values and um and see where there's patterns of behavior and that you know give it give them the idea this is this is an opportunity to um have a new start hmm. do things differently rather <clears throat> than feeling very very stuck um and it's supposed to be a very neutral place where people can discuss their issues and be heard and a lot of the therapeutic stuff is all about challenging thinking and having really good questions so that people become unstuck in their thinking. Awesome. 
qualified and UKCP registered family and system, a systemic psychotherapist for East London Relationship Therapy. Nasreen Begum with us on the line. Nasreen Zakala, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Very interesting to talk to you. Uh, greatly appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much once again. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878. I feel like having a therapy session every time <laughs> I watch the news. <laughs> <laughs> With yourself? <laughs> yeah. Or with the world? <laughs> yeah. like, come on, sit, sit. We need to talk. Exactly. <laughs> so we were talking about um, the causes, some of the major causes of uh, the families having feuds within them. And we went through, I believe it was two of them. The first one being lying. Then second one was anger. Yes. Third one is... Stealing. Stealing. So stealing is selfishly... Um, taking something from someone else. Um, if we steal, we hurt others. Rather than steal from others, we should work so we can give to others. Um, stealing could be stealing uh, time, attention, obviously finances, energy, affection, communication, and love from a family member. So it's not just limited to yeah. taking money out of the pocket uh, of your partner. It's taking the love out of my heart. <laughs> We have a number four corrupt speech. Now, our mouth uh, can build up or tear down. The, there's, it's, it, it is for a reason that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that you cannot call yourself a believer until the people around you are safe from your tongue and from your hand. So the tongue came first. We can encourage each other or we can criticize each other. Whether it is foul language, abusive language, it is hard to change a habit. So you change the mouth by changing the heart. The secret is making sure that your heart is full of blessings, that your heart is pure. Speak in such a way that what you will say will build up others. It is a very, very, um, I think, underrated point. Yes. Um, and if again, if you come to these things and you think about what 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 you find in the narrations and how the Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him behaved in, in this regard 100%. I can think of at least three four right now that I could I could I could tell you yeah. where uh, your your language m- matters hugely L- language and tone 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 as well exactly yeah. but before we get to the fifth point that we've had that we have on our list we're going to go to our next uh, guest for today we are speaking to Jane Robbie who is the CEO of National Family Mediation good afternoon peace upon you and welcome to the draft I'm sure Jane thank you good afternoon thank you very much for joining us today the National Family Mediation can you tell us more about that what is it that you do and deal with So, National Family Mediation, we provide family mediation services for families who are experiencing divorce, separation, relationship uh, breakdown, family conflict, and want to find a different way to communicate with each other to, um, to be able to work better together. So is it a service funded by the government? I mean, the, the word national sort of... Um uh, it comes up here and, and hence the question no no it's not funded by the government yeah. but if you're going through a divorce or a separation and you find yourself heading to court 
to uh, resolve your disputes, then legal aid is available mm-hmm. for oh, family okay. mediation. And that, that's a means-tested um, fund sure. that, that, that people can access. So that would mean if you were eligible for legal aid, you could have mediation free of, of charge. So, Jane, um, what do you then encounter uh, on a day-to-day basis in your work as the biggest cause of, of division in the family? Well, the biggest um, the biggest cause of division is usually that one person wants to end the marriage or the relationship um, for a number of reasons. I mean, it could be that they no longer get on. It could be that somebody else has met some one of them has met somebody else. Um, um, you know, relationships are hard to keep together, aren't mm. they? Mm. Um, but it's usually in in the when when parents have decided that they want to separate, that they would come and see us. And what, how much of a role do kids play in um, in sort of acting as a glue for the family and and almost enticing the couple not to separate? Oh, children never want their parents to separate. Yeah. Um, but. They, they're they often uh, caught in the middle of their parents' disputes um, and they are often used um, as the go-between between mm. one parent and another. But parents who come into mediation can also include their children in mediation and that, we find, is really helpful for the children. Because the children's feelings about their changing family are different from the mum's and the dad's feelings about their changing family. And what children predominantly want is to know that both of their parents still love and care for them uh, and will be there to look after them and make important decisions. But their concerns are about things like, well, you know, will we keep going to the same school? Will I keep my friends? Will I see my grandparents? Um, Where will we live? What will happen to the family pets? Those kinds of things. Uh, And what we try to do in mediation is encourage parents to focus on their children's needs and focus on minimizing their anxieties and addressing their anxieties and making sure that they behave like parents so that their children can feel safe and confident and and go through make the transition to becoming a separated family so is your role then to make this whole process easier for all parties involved including children or or yes, is it yes. also to to try and um uh, and stop the separation from happening altogether. No, we we are we're led by the clients, um, and divorce is not an easy thing, not an easy sure. decision for a lot of people to make. Of um, um, and when they first come to mediation, they 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 would start from saying, you know, we want to separate, but especially in these hard financial times when they when they learn about what they have to do and they start looking at how they're going to split their finances and their their assets and their debts um and and the time and the trauma that that's going to take 
then there are people who review their situation and think, you know, well, hey, maybe it isn't all that bad and maybe we should try again. But always what we're trying to do, whether people decide to separate or decide to go back together, is to try and improve the communication between them, to help them look to the future, to think about the things that they they would need to do in the future. Right. So, so essentially make a very informed decision and um, and, and try to help with um, uh, with making the, the right decision, what's best for all parties involved. Yes, especially the children, especially always the children. focusing on the children. Mm-hmm. So and, and for, to get a divorce, you know, most people do have to get legal orders uh, mm-hmm. like a financial order. I mean, lots of people manage to make their child arrangements without going to court, and they should make child arrangements without going to court. Nobody knows the children better than the parents. Um, So it causes more trauma Mm. and delays decisions that need to be be made by going through the court system. Jane, one last question from my side is that I just wanted to ask about the, the numbers. I mean... Are there more and more people using your services? How? What? What role did the pandemic play? Was it a big uptake? And and if so, what do you think that was? Um, there are more and more people using our services, but that is because there is a growing awareness about the benefits of using mediation. The actual numbers of people who are going through divorce and separation haven't varied hugely, but there are huge backlogs in the family courts that mean people are waiting an inordinate length of time. I mean, the the last I heard, to get a contact arrangement in place, it was taking about 44 weeks in court. Now, that's nearly a year of a child's life. Mm. So parents can't wait that long. Children can't wait that long. So they have to find another way. So I'm, I'm very glad to say that more and more people are turning to mediation um, and are finding out that mediation is available. So, yeah, we have seen an increase in the numbers. And that combined with the fact that legal aid is available and the government is um, supporting people who go through mediation by offering a £500 pound, £5, voucher to participate in mediation so that they avoid the backlogs and delays that the courts are currently experiencing. So that's encouraging people to use alternatives to the court. And the voucher's been incredibly successful. I mean, we've we've used over 10,000 vouchers, mm. and 77% of those people have reached an agreement. So for the majority of people, mediation is going to work yeah. in some degree or another. Great. Jane, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you very much for your time. CEO of National Family Mediation, Jane Robbie, with us on the line. Take care. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. Tough time, that period. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, tough time and uh, and a tough job, I, I would imagine, as well. Uh, you know, trying to mediate between all parties, trying to make sure that the children's interest is taken care of, trying to put some sense <coughs> to um, uh, to both parties involved as well. Because, yeah, this is a hugely disruptive thing for, for children. And it's usually 
And I think I've heard His Holiness say this as well in, 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 in sermons and different occasions. Small things sometimes. Mm. Mm. Many cases it's just Blow out of proportion. minor things that get blown out of proportion, yeah. miscommunication, misunderstandings. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much it. And then a whole family unit is destroyed, unfortunately. So what can we do? What can we say or not say? Oh, actually, there was one thing left on that list of ours after the foul language or corrupt spe- uh, st- uh, speech. Yeah. There was one more, bitterness, wasn't it? Yeah. So don't let bitterness and hatred overcome you. The basic cause of a bitter attitude is that we don't forgive others. And an unforgiving, bitter spirit hurts us and destroys all our relationships. And it can cause us to threat others the way, or treat other, others the ways that Satan treats them. But we shouldn't treat them we should treat them the way God has treated us. So forgiving, again, uh, if you look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace and mm. blessings of Allah be upon him, we're not, in, in these cases, we're not talking about uh, someone you know, killing your loved ones, someone uh, harassing you over two decades, or someone mm. uh, persecuting all of your friends. No, we're talking about arguments, we're talking about misunderstandings within the family unit. But if he could forgive the killers of his daughter, if he could forgive the killers that uh, were responsible, the people responsible for the ultimate death of his uh, beloved first wife and so mm. many friends and family members, then I'm sure we shouldn't have any issues in forgiving uh, someone who we thought would be a life partner before. In chapter 7, verse 27 of the Holy Quran, God Almighty states, O children of Adam, we have indeed sent down to you uh, raiment to cover the sh- your shame and to be an elegant dress but the raiment of righteousness that is the best that is one of the signs of Allah that they may remember so clothing has been made apparent in this verse but we have been given clothing to make them make us different from other human beings to cover up and to dress up but what makes us better or the, the best kind of covering up is or the real garment is the garment of, of righteousness. And that includes pretty much everything. Um, all the points that we mentioned before, if you have that righteousness in you, you know, that taqwa that God Almighty is talking about. And taqwa, one, one of the, you know, the explanations given to, I think it was the first caliph or the second caliph, I'm not sure. Um, uh, he was asked about what exactly taqwa is. And he, he said that, Righteousness or taqwa, that word that has been used in, in Islam and in, in the Holy Quran, is that if you, imagine you're walking through a, a thorn, thorny valley mm. right, filled with thorns, the way you walk through that valley, saving yourself and just you protecting know, your protecting dress and your exactly. dress and mm-hmm. elegantly going through that, watching all your sides, that's that that's what taqwa basically is. Yes. That's how you should go through life, right. and these thorns being all of the. Yeah, the all around you, the yeah, sins all the time. And, and, yeah. and all the bad things around you, exactly. So, how do we solve things? Right. So, we solve things by number one, as we were talking about earlier, communication. Mm. Uh, talk less, listen more, listen twice as much as you talk. God has given us two ears and only one <laughs> mouth for a reason. <laughs> Listening communicates respect. Listening means you are not imposing a viewpoint on others. Listening reduces tension, 
family communication is dead in the water without it. I mean, it cannot be, uh, yeah. it cannot overstate the importance of being a good listener in life generally. Yeah. I mean, in, yeah. in, in any relationship, obviously at, at home as well. If you yeah. are a parent, you should, mm. you should have learned it by now. Mm-hmm. If your child talks about all the stories at, 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 yeah. at school and what happened and whatnot, yeah. and even if it is about the, the insects crawling on, on that floor <laughs> and how interesting they are, you sat through that. So it shouldn't be a problem to sit through something an adult is talking about. Um, secondly, if you can sit down together and talk, then by all means do so. Don't pretend that there is no problem and don't expect an instant compromise. Instead, you will have to work out an agreement and you will have to work hard for that, rest assured. And then uh, turning it over to God, some things are uh, beyond our capacity to fix uh, that doesn't have to be the end of hope. Prayer is always an option. Take time to acknowledge our personal inadequacy and our need for divine help. Can uh, most times mm. tip the balance in the favor of hope. And I think this this should be the first and last yeah, thing, actually. Yeah. Um, fourthly, if the people who are um, having differences with each other, if they are your children or or other family members you might be that mediator that they need if you're embroiled in the conflict personally then ask everyone's favorite relative and look i think it's especially in in people or families from the subcontinent this plays a huge huge role 100 percent elders of the family massively massive but i think one more thing that i I, that i think uh, also helps is 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 setting some some rules of of a relationship, just mm. like any relationship, you know, mar- mar- marital relationship is the most important relationship, and and therefore setting some some rules about you know how rules of communication, for example, mm. a rule about um, uh, always, for example, not turning your face the other way when mm. the other when your partner is talking to you, not leaving the room when when the other yeah. when one partner is talking to the other partner, you know, stuff like that, basic things, mm. but. They, they go a long way, I think. All right. Now, we have two more. But before we do that, we're going to speak to our next guest, who's the uh, found. Actually, um, just before that, we want to talk about the Parent Mental Health Day, which is on the 27th of January today. Um, so Parent Mental Health Day was, was set up by a charity called STEM4. So STEM4 is a charity that supports young people to build positive mental health. Uh, It's proud to be the UK founder of Parent Mental Health Day, which started last year in 2022. And this day encourages the understanding and awareness of the importance of the family as a system where parent and care and mental health uh, is is, is as important a focus as young people's mental health. So within this year's theme being Build Family Resilience, hashtag Build Family Resilience, the day will aim to explore how family resilience can be built, how you can minimize the negative impact on either the parents and carers or their children and young people. So here with us to talk a little bit more about this is the founder and CEO of STEM4, Dr. Nihara Krause. Uh, good afternoon, peace be upon you, and welcome to the Draft Time Show. Uh, hello, good afternoon. Thank you for having me on your show. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, Dr. Krause, what is STEM for? What do you help with? I know I mentioned about Parent Mental Health Day, which, I mean, you 
um, kind of uh, you're you're the UK founder of of the UK uh, of of the Parent Mental Health Day. But what exactly do you do? Stem4 is a teenage mental health charity. We've been established for the last eleven years. And we really aim to focus on two different arms. Uh, firstly is education, because education really helps in terms of identification, early intervention and prevention. And so we do that with young people, with their parents and families and with schools. And we have a big education program on how to identify early signs of mental ill health. But we've also got a health arm. And within that arm, we have five free mental health apps. Uh, that target different conditions such as anxiety, for example, or depression. And we've also got one for parents and carers. So tell us about Parent Mental Health Day. What, as is, as I said, we uh, the, this year's theme um, is build family resilience. What exactly do you hope to get out of that? Is there any 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 uh, programs that happen around the country how do people know about it if they want to know more how do they get involved yes of course so um as you mentioned in your little brief introduction um it's very very important to think about the family as a system because whatever is happening within a family to any one member will have an effect it's like a ripple hmm. effect on the whole of the family and parents and carers have a really hard job because they look after their children, they've got to look after each other, they've got to look after themselves, and often they will also be looking after their own parents or a wider family network and juggling many demands. And we have all been impacted by the pandemic over the last couple of years. And then on top of that, we've had you know a number of crises upon crises to the point that last year, the word of the year was perma-crisis, yeah. uh, which is not very good because it generates a huge amount of anxiety, but also a sense of despair and hopelessness for some people. So we really wanted to say, how can we get together? How might we start to think about overcoming the challenges that we face? How can we all um, support each other in working for better mental health? What sort of resources are available for uh, for helping parents? There's loads of resources. So if you go onto our website, and that's also where you'll find out information about Parent Mental Health Day, uh, which is uh, semfor.org.uk, um, we have... And we have each mental ill health condition together with a, a, a bit for parents and carers to go to to be informed. Uh, we've got uh, resources that we've translated into different languages. We've got our apps, of course, as I mentioned. We run a number of webinars and workshops for parents. Um, and we've just finished one today on building family resilience. We had a huge response from across the country. Um, we actually had 12,000 parents register, so it just shows the, you know, the investment that mm. parents make in well-being uh, of themselves. Um, and we've got ongoing issues. We've got another webinar in March on eating disorders. So just, you know, check our website, and you will be able to access lots and lots of information. Sure, I'm on your website, and yeah, it is very impressive. And you're absolutely right; there are uh, a lot of resources. So. Mm -hmm. um, so you are so essentially would it be fair to say that the uh, that the idea really is to 
provide as much help as possible to parents so that the the most important unit of a family can be kept intact? Absolutely, absolutely. And that everybody can find a way to work together, even when things are very challenging and dif- difficult, if people are, you know, clashing over things or if there are great strains that people are facing or indeed if their health is compromised, then how might they communicate concerns and how might they work together for a good outcome? In your experience, what do you what, what do you generally find to be um, a major cause of, uh, for example, breakdown of communication? Ah, oh, there are lots and lots of different reasons. So people are different even within a family, and mm. so it's quite common to, you know, kind of have disagreements and fallouts and differences over many things. But often, if these clashes get out of hand, then it risks pulling a family apart. Um, so there are many reasons: mistrust, feeling wronged, being misunderstood. But I would say that parental mental health is often a contributory factor. And it's very difficult as a parent because you want to be the person who isn't affected by anything, who can be that powerful figure who, you know, kind of gets by and pulls everyone through. But we're all human. We're all affected by things. And if you do have a parent who's extremely stressed and therefore irritable and overwhelmed as a result, or a parent who's depressed and finding it hard to cope, a parent who's got an alcohol or drug dependency problem or a gambling issue, or indeed if a parent is violent, then this will impact the whole family system. And how has the um, uptake of service, uh, these services uh, been, especially among uh, fathers, the male members of the family? Well, that, that's such a great question. I'm so pleased you asked. The uptake has been amazing. So as I mentioned, the charity was established 11 years ago, and when we did run a number of these um, then face-to-face seminars, we'd have primarily more females in the audiences than males. But actually now I would say that we have equal numbers every November in accordance with November, which celebrates male Health. We run a whole series of programs for uh, boys and young men and fathers on accessing mental health information that's relevant to them to start to think a little bit about, you know, the challenges that there might be uh, within society, within cultures, within families of being a man, the responsibilities, how men might express their mental health concerns. Um, and we find that a really, really beneficial and helpful way to engage with all of the community. I'm uh, looking at your website and some of the apps that you have on the website, uh, you know, yeah. uh, for example, the Calm Harm. Calm Harm is a free app to help teenagers manage or resist the urge to self-harm. Clear Fear mm-hmm. is a free app to help children and young people manage symptoms of anxiety. Yeah. Move Mood is a free app to help young people manage behaviors associated with low mood or depression. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Amazing resources there, and uh, yeah, um, yeah, some amazing work being done by uh, by yourselves. Thank Ex- you. Yeah, and they're all built to NHS standards, so they're all very secure. They come from clinical sources. We work with all our groups, including young people, to kind of get something that works. We've got about 3.5 million users across the world, so we wow. are absolutely proud to be supporting uh, the need that's there. Well, all the very best with 
all your future endeavors. You are doing a great work, and um, we just hope, we just wish you the very best for uh, for this year and beyond as well. Please continue to do all the great work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Godspeed. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Nihara Krause, who um, is the um, uh, head at STEM for talking to us about uh, what they do and how they support parents and families. Now, we are coming to the end of today's program and uh, there's a few things that we want to highlight once again, uh, something that we've spoken throughout the show as well. There's a book called Domestic Issues and Their Solution, which is a it's a it's a collection of, I think, addresses and speeches of His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed, the current caliph of the Amdi Muslim community, um, and has it, you know, it's filled with ways in which domestic issues can be solved. And again, if you read it, you will come to realize it is, as we said, in the grand scheme of things, minor things, mm. minor issues, minor miscommunication and misunderstandings. So one of the um, things that he was talking about in one of his Friday sermons delivered in 2015, on the 15th of July, he said that a companion of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Hazrat Abu Sayyid Khudri, may Allah be pleased with him, narrates that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said, On the day of judgment, the greatest betrayal counted in the sight of Allah the exalted will be when a man has a relationship with his wife and then divulges his wife's secrets. In today's society, people disclose the private matters between husband and wife to their parents, and this at times leads to unpleasantness and conflict arises. Sometimes parents have the habit of prying into the matters of, the, of their offsprings, and this becomes the cause of disagreements. This is why the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that neither husband and wife have the right to disclose their personal matters, no matter what kind they are, to others, nor others should ask about them or listen to them. In my view, if this advice is adhered to, many disagreements would stop in their own accord. Another thing that we spoke about was righteousness. So the the word that we used was taqwa. Um, in one of his um, addresses, His Holiness has said that the Holy Prophet or the Holy Quran enjoins on, in numerous places in many, many different uh, passages to observe taqwa. So on that, the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said in the Holy Quran, more emphasis has been laid on virtue and righteousness than on any other commandment. The reason for this is that righteousness bestows the strength to resist all vices and urges progress towards all good. Righteousness is in all circumstances a charm that guarantees security and is a citadel for safeguarding against all harm. A righteous person can avoid many vain and harmful contentions that often lead others, other people to ruin. They sow the seed of dissension among the people through their hasty actions and suspicions and lay themselves open to objection. You see, for most, as for a religious person, as a Muslim, we know that your life, your journey as, as a family, as, as a couple starts with prayers. Right, so you have the nikah that is announced, the verses that are read in which God Almighty mm. talks about righteousness. God talks about um, justice and doc- God talks about you know, saying the truth mm. and taking care of each other. If your journey is based on the right foundations, mm. then the chances of that foundation turning into a be- big beautiful house 
are quite big, right? So if the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, says in his narrations that we marry for certain reasons. Mm. So there's four or five different reasons four, why yeah. we why why we marry. Yeah. Some marry and some get married for their the, the beauty of, of their wife. Yeah. Some marry some, for wealth. For wealth. For some for status. Some for the family background or yeah. the family standing of of that of of a certain person. But these things they they this should not be the case. Yeah, beauty when, is only skin deep, as they say, <laughs> and, and, and wealth doesn't last forever. <laughs> exactly, and the family yeah. again—that's something yeah. else. But unless and 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 you marry a person for their righteousness, yeah. for their inner beauty, their spiritual beauty, basically, right. that's what it is, and that is something that is going to last. Yeah. And he said that you will be destroyed. Your hands will be destroyed, or your hands will be in dust. That's an Arabic expression. Mm. That your your future will be bleak if you marry a person for for all the other reasons. for all the other reasons. Yeah, and if you have the opportunity to marry someone, then you should do that. Mm. And again, it it is a world that is you know fueled by what is all this bling bling and 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 whatnot, and it's all about the 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 physical beauty and nobody cares about the spiritual side of things. You must be talking sen- uh, talking uh, sense to some people, but also French to a lot of other people who are <laughs> who are active users of social media. They'll be thinking, what, what is this guy talking about? Uh, you know, yeah, that the beauty. Of Which course. is why I have like five <laughs> followers on, on certain <laughs> certain social media outlets. But yeah, Jazakallah, thank you very much for joining us today. Hopefully you found something useful. You learned something in today, from today's program. We asked you a question about the first topic, the current genocide of which uh, um, people need more attention thank you very much for your replies and for your responses today's program was researched and produced by Fezia Hakan Sabiha Tariq Jazakallah to them as well until Monday from all of us Assalamu Alaikum